In the lesson this morning, we talked about the, the idea of joy, and we talked about joy as being something that uh, we can have consistently throughout our lives, and that as Christians, we, we're called to. As Christians, we're called to be a, a joyful people, called to be people who understand that what matters most in this life is not rooted in uh, the daily news cycle, or it's not rooted in the highs and lows that we face as weeks and months pass, but it's rooted in the eternal, and it's rooted in the standard and the rock that is our God. And as long as there is a God, there is cause for joy. And the fact that there's always a God means there's always something to be joyful in, especially when you come to know that that God loves you, that that God sent his son to die for you, and that that God has saved you and made a home for you for eternity with him. And so as we think about joy, we kind of differentiated it from what I would call happiness and joy. And I don't know if you were to open up a dictionary, if you would see the differentiation that I'm, that I'm suggesting. But to, it's just helpful, uh, if for no other reason than just semantics, uh, it's helpful to see the, what I'm talking about in a different way. Because there is the, the fleeting happiness and the fleeting uh, uh, feeling that we might get when something uh, unexpectedly good happens or when you're doing something exhilarating or when, you know, just whatever. There's things in life that can cause happiness. But you're not always going to live your life at that emotional level. Uh, Emotions will rise and fall and will come and go. But hopefully deeper than that, we can have the peace and the contentment that is rooted in something beyond ourselves so that as those highs and lows come, we can take comfort in knowing that there is something solid in our lives. And it's that consistent feeling of peace that, that remains even when we're going through emotional highs and lows that I'm talking about when I talk about joy. And I think when we have that sort of joy, it gives us strength as we encounter those difficult times. The passage that we read this morning was from, Isaiah, uh, from uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, where it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you can draw strength from having joy in the Lord, even in dark and difficult times. And so we talked about this, uh, that this morning and, and hopefully ways of cultivating a joy like that, setting aside time to, uh, to think about and meditate and pray about the things that God has done for us that can give us joy, to practice things that would help bring joy into our lives, and to remember what we have to be joyful for. We shouldn't passively live life expecting joy to just take over us. We have to take steps towards making room for joy in our lives. And that is something that if we do it daily and consistently, when those dark times hit, we will have built up enough practice and stamina with our joy that it can endure throughout. Uh, And we also talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is a source of joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit is the kingdom of heaven, it says in Romans 14. Joy is one of the, is the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians chapter 5. And so joy and the Christian walk go hand in hand. Uh, We have much to be joyful for. That's not to say there's never moments of grief or mourning or sadness or sorrow. There are, but we should live a life, and, and Jesus experienced those things. But at the same time, I think we're called to live a life that shows the joy of the Lord, even in times of, uh, of hardship. Well, why should we be joyful people, and where does this joy come from? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight, and the answer I'll give it to you right at the beginning. Uh, the joy that we are called to experience co- comes from the Lord. In fact, 
just about every good thing that we have or that we're called to embody or called to live into is something that is found primarily and ultimately in the Lord himself. Truth matters. Truth is a good thing. But why does truth matter? Why should we be people of truth? Because at the very end of all true things, there is the one capital T ultimate truth, and that truth is God. Um, If there were no God, yes, there would be some things that that align with reality more than other things. There would be some things that would be true and some things that's not. But I don't see any reason why truth would be privileged above non-truth. If there's no if there's no standard at all of right and wrong, of good or and bad, of, of moral and immoral, then lies and truth, they might be different, but there's no reason to say that one is superior to the other or that one is closer to the ideal. There is no ideal if there's no God. And so why does truth matter? Because God is truth, and everything goes back to him. I think the same thing about beauty. I think beauty matters, because there's ultimately the source of beauty is God himself. The ultimate source of wisdom and goodness is God himself. And I think the same is true with joy. The ultimate source of joy that we're called to have in our lives is God himself. God is joy. And that's important to know, God is love, God is true, God is holy, God is all sorts of things, but God is also joy. And we can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking about God as, um, maybe, maybe we think about God and joy isn't one of the first thoughts that comes into our head. You know, maybe uh, wrath comes before, which I would say God is wrath too. There's passages that teach that, certainly. But if we so emphasize one aspect of God to the exclusion of others, then we end up with a false idea of God. We, we can end up making God an idol. And if we think of God and we don't think of God as ultimately being the source of all true joy and the, 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 the origin of all true joy, then I think we are going to end up with a false view of God. When we think of God, we should think of a joyful God. And there's a lot of reasons to do so throughout the Bible. So I wanted, what I wanted to do uh, in the lesson today, I usually kind of focus on one primary verse. I'm not really going to do that tonight. Um, I'm going to read a bunch of verses, uh, and I'll say brief comments about them as we go. You can flip along in your Bibles if you want to. You can just listen if you'd like to, because I'll, I'll be turning kind of quickly and go into a number of them. But we're just going to read some passages that talk about the things that bring God joy. And the language might vary from passage to passage. Some of them might use the word joy or rejoice. Some of them might use the word like God delights in this, or God takes pleasure in this, or God rejoices in this. But we're going to look at the things that happen on earth that actually bring joy and pleasure and happiness to God who's in heaven. We know that God can be angry, And we know that God can be sorrowful. Uh, In in Genesis 6, uh, we're told that God was sorry when he saw all of the evil and the wickedness on the earth. But it's also important to remember that there are things that happen on earth. There are things that you can do that make God rejoice, that make God sing, that make God joyful and uh, and happy and pleased. And and so we're going to look at some of those things. To start off, turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. If you read through Zephaniah, uh, it's written during the the time period of King Josiah. And King Josiah is actually one of the few good kings of of, uh, Judah. We talked about him uh, briefly earlier this morning. But 
shortly after the reign of Josiah. It was during the reign of his sons. There were a couple of them, and there was a a lot of turmoil during the reign of his sons. That's when Babylon came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and led uh, Israel captive. Well, during his reign, Zephaniah is one of the prophets who is discussing what's going to happen in that day. He's discussing what's going to happen, what will be the fate of Jerusalem and Judah. He also discusses what the fate of the nations surrounding them, those wicked nations, will be. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of wrath and punishment in the book of Zephaniah. But the conclusion of the book of Zephaniah tells us that the end of the story for Judah and Jerusalem, and even for the nations, is not wrath and destruction. The nations will ultimately come to see the goodness of God. And there will be a day when, for even Judah in Jerusalem, God will remember them, will restore them, and when he does so, it'll be a day of great joy. If you look with me at uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, I'm going to read this um, through the end of the chapter, and we'll just notice some of the language. God is calling them to rejoice as they consider the future blessings that God will have for their people. It says, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. All right, so if you've been thinking about destruction and punishment from their enemies, God is saying, start to rejoice and shout and sing because I have good news for you. God's judgments against you are gone. He's forgiven you. And so the enemies that were oppressing you, they will be no more. He's cleared them away. And the king of Israel, and you, you know, they might have been expecting, you know, they, they had had King David. They had had King Josiah. He was the king. Uh, he says, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. He reminds them that even though there is a human figurehead who, who claims the status of king, the true and ultimate king is God himself. And he is the one who will clear away their enemies. He's the one who will remove the judgments from them. He's the one who will bring them back so that the end of verse 15 says, you will fear disaster no more. The day that disaster is taken away, the day that judgments are removed, the day of enemies being cleared away is a great and glorious day. It's a day of forgiveness. It's a day of salvation. It's a day of returning to the very presence of God. And so in this day, verse 16, in that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear or be afraid, O Zion, nor let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing or with shouts of joy. Think of that in verse 17. Some of your Bibles might have different words there. But the language is of God himself. On the day that, that Judah and Jerusalem is restored and forgiven, on the day that they're brought back home, you know what God is going to do? He tells them to rejoice because he is rejoicing. God will rejoice in that day. God will shout with joy. God will sing in that day. God is going to be so excited about the forgiveness that he gives to his people that he will be joyful and rejoicing and pleased in that day. So why should they be joyful? Well, their joy ultimately comes from the fact that it will be a day of the Lord's joy. The Lord's joy is the foundation of all joy. And the Lord takes great delight in forgiving his people. The God, God takes great delight in bringing his people out of hardship and blessing his people. Like all of those things are things that bring God joy. So when, when someone puts on Christ in baptism, 
and a person receives forgiveness of sins, God rejoices. I believe God sings and is joyful in that moment. When someone uh, does the will of God on this world, where so often people fail to do so, that's a good thing, not just here and now, but in heaven above. God rejoices in those acts. When God forgives someone, when God uh, saves somebody, those are great and glorious things that bring God joy. It says in verse 18, this is what the Lord will do. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame, gather the outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So he's going to grab those who are grieving, and he's going to have festivals for them. He's going to look at those who are... Um, uh, those who are lame, outcasts, and those who have been shamed, and he will turn that shame into praise and great renown. God wants to bless his people, and it brings him joy to do so. In verse 20, the final verse of the book, at that time I will bring you in, even at that time when I gather you together, and I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So this day of God blessing them, of making them great again, of restoring their fortunes, of forgiving their failures, of taking away their judgment, of clearing away their enemies, all these things will happen, and God will rejoice in that day. So you rejoice also. You shout for joy in that day. Again, this is one, you know, section, one paragraph, but it's rooted in the idea that there is reason for rejoicing. And that reason that we rejoice comes ultimately because of the same things that make God rejoice. God is a joyful God as well. Look with me at Psalm 149 in verse 4. Psalm 149 in verse 4. The final collection of psalms from Psalm 146 to Psalm 150, the last five psalms, these are uh, another collection of what you might call Hallel psalms, uh, the Hebrew word Hallel meaning praise. They each begin with this uh, word, praise the Lord. If you look at Psalm 149, if you look at the first verse of it, the first line says, praise the Lord. If you look right above that to the last line of Psalm 148, it's praise the Lord. If you look at the last line of Psalm 149, it's praise the Lord. If you look at the first line of Psalm 150, praise the Lord. If you look at the last line of Psalm 150, it's praise the Lord. You can go through these psalms and you can see how they begin and they end with the words praise the Lord. Uh, that's, that's a Hebrew phrase that all of us know. It's hallelujah. Uh, and uh, hallel is the first part of that, and that means praise. So anyway, sometimes you'll see collections uh, or sections of the psalms where these are grouped together. A psalm like 113 through 118 is another one of those collections. These are psalms where you praise God. And as you read them in a collection, you see a host of things that you praise God over. Well, in Psalm 149... You're praising God because of his love for his people, particularly his godly ones or his saints, in how he has brought them to glory, and so they ought to glory God in return. And as you uh, read through, let's read—I'll uh, read the first four verses. It says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and praise his name in the congregation of the saints or the godly ones. That word is in verse 1. In verse 5, it says, let the godly ones or the saints exult in glory. If you look at verse 9 right at the end, 
says to execute on them the judgment written that is an honor for all his saints or godly ones. Uh, and so three times in this psalm, this is kind of what, what unites it, is this expression about what God is doing for his godly ones, the people who live in a sanctified way that he's called them to be. But verse 2 it says, let Israel be glad in his maker, and let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king, and let them praise his name with dancing, and let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. So he talks about Israel, sons of Israel, praise God, rejoice, dance, sing, be happy, praise him in every way that you can. And then you get to verse 4, why? Because the Lord delights or has pleasure in his people, and he will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. What brings the Lord pleasure or delight? It's his people. And since the Lord delights or takes pleasure in his people, since God is joyful and happy and delighted in his people, then his people, they sing and they worship and they delight in the Lord. And so the first three verses are telling the people, delight in God, sing and praise and rejoice in God. Why? Because he takes pleasure. He finds joy and delight in you. And so because God delights in his people and will beautify the afflicted, the afflicted who, you know, who so often are going through hardships and the last thing you think of when you see them is beauty, he says, I will beautify the afflicted because I love them. I will be with my people because I delight in them. So it's time for you to rejoice and delight in that. So our God delights and finds joy and sings and rejoices in the day of salvation for his people like Zephaniah. Or when he considers his people and he just looks at his people, they bring delight to him. And he wants to do good things for his people. Look with me at First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 17. This is a prayer of David as preparations are being made for uh, the temple that Solomon will build. Uh, there is all sorts of gold and riches and treasure being gathered up uh, for, for that day. And David offers a prayer uh, before Solomon becomes king. He, he talks about Solomon and uh, what will happen. But then he offers this prayer to God. And uh, if you look back at verse, verse 14... He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, for from your hand we have given you. And so of all the gold that they're giving to God, he's thinking, you know, it's kind of like, like when my kids get a Christmas gift for my wife or for me, like, it's my money that they're using to get the gift for me, and so they're just taking from me to give back to me. But it's good for them to do it, and I love it what they do, and it's, it's happy. But it's like, that's what David's feeling like. He's like, God, I'm giving you all of this gold and all this treasure, but I also understand that all of this gold and all this treasure is yours anyway, so I'm giving from you, I'm taking from you to give to you. But I hope you'll find joy in that. Um, if you get to verse 15, he says, For we are sojourners before you, and tenants... And all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand, and all is yours. Since I know, O God, that you try the heart, and then notice the phrase, and delight in uprightness, 
I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all of these things. So now with joy I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. And so it's fascinating. Of all the things that he could say God delights in, he doesn't say, and you, God, delight in the house that we're making. Or necessarily that you delight in how much all of the gold costs that we've accumulated and collected and put together. What God actually delights in is the uprightness is people who are practicing righteousness and justice in doing what is right. And so it's in the integrity of his heart that he gives those things. So that it's not necessarily the gift itself that God delights or takes pleasure in. It's the upright heart of the one who is giving it. And so even as he's making uh, preparations for the temple, and even as they're generously giving all of this uh, to build this beautiful and wonderful house for God, he's stating from the beginning all of this is already yours, and we understand that. In fact, even our presence in this land that you've given to us, we're merely sojourners and tenants. You're the one who owns the house. You're the one who owns the land. You're the one who's allowing us to stay here. And so everything that we give to you is borrowed. Everything that we give to you is yours already. But what I know you do delight in is the uprightness of our hearts when we offer it. And so it is from integrity that we offer these things so that we can give back to you. And I think that's a beautiful image of reminding us what types of things does God delight in? Well, he does delight. He does take pleasure. He does have joy. He delights in not necessarily the amount of gold that they are able to give, but the uprightness and integrity of their heart as they give it. He delights in uh, his people and will beautify the afflicted. He delights when he's able to save people who have been uh, cast down. All of these passages are showing you the types of things that make God happy, that delight the Lord. And, uh, and you see each of them here. Look with me at Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. Micah chapter 7. What's interesting is the name uh, Micah uh, means something like, who is like the Lord? You know, who is like you? And so the verse that we're about to read, it's right at the conclusion of the book. It connects back to the very name of Micah, where he says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act, uh, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? So he's saying, who is like you, God? Like, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, you forgive sins of people and iniquity of people, and you pass over their rebellious acts? It's like, that's—God doesn't always seek retribution. God often passes over the rebellious acts and pardons and forgives the iniquities of his people. Why would he do that? Well, verse 18 says, He does not retain his anger forever because he delights— in unchanging love or steadfast love. What does God delight in? What gives him joy and delight and pleasure? Having unchanging or steadfast love for his people. That, those final two phrases right there where it says, he does not retain his anger forever, but delights in unchanging love. Uh, those connect back to a very well-known, uh, famous passage from Exodus 34, one that probably in the Old Testament I mention about more than any other, where the Lord introduces or, or describes his very character to Moses, uh, saying, the Lord, the Lord God, um, 
is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, or unchanging love, or loyal love. And he has steadfast love for thousands. And he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the father to the son and the grandson to the third and fourth generation. As you read that passage, that final phrase right there gives us some pause. But if you look at what I think it basically means, where he talks about to the third and fourth, he doesn't in Hebrew, the word generation isn't actually there. It just says to the third and fourth. And that's in contrast to the phrase right above it where he says his steadfast love is for thousands. But he visits the iniquity of the, the father to the third and fourth. And if you were to count up to a thousand or thousands, plural, and compare that to three or four, you would realize that one of those numbers is a whole lot bigger than the other one. The steadfast love of God is for thousands. In fact, as you read through uh, the, the rest of the Bible, you'll see that that steadfast love, we actually uh, just had uh, um, on the, uh, it's the word chesed, um, and it was uh, discussed during the Lord's Supper talk not long ago. But, uh, but anyway, that word, it, it's throughout uh, the, the Old Testament. It appears over and over again. It appears a ton in the Psalms. And oftentimes when they use it, like Psalm 136 or Psalm 118, it'll say, rejoice in the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's like that phrase of his love being for thousands. If you take like thousands of generations can experience that, they just end up saying it lasts forever. And you know what ends up happening to that final phrase there where uh, it says that he visits the iniquity of the the, uh, parents of the children of the third and fourth? That ends up being shortened to something. What, What I mean is that phrase or that quotation from Exodus 34, it's quoted again in the Old Testament. It's actually quoted quite a few times. And as it's quoted, subtle changes are made to kind of make it shorter and more compact. And that happens a number of times to where you'll end up seeing um, that phrase. In fact, you can, you can even look. If, if you're in Micah chapter 7, look over at Nahum chapter 1 in verse 2. You'll, you'll see that verse summarized right here where it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Like those sentences come from Exodus 34. That's, he's, he's using those words as he writes this. Um, But the book of Jonah, fascinatingly, at the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah's furious with God because God has forgiven Nineveh. Why would God do that? We're supposed to hate Nineveh. Nineveh's our enemies. Nineveh's wicked. Nineveh's evil. Nineveh should be destroyed outright, absolutely, and forever. And yet God forgave him, forgave them. And Jonah's, that's why Jonah fled. Like, he didn't flee because he was afraid for his own life. He was fine. He would much rather die than see Nineveh repent and be forgiven. Like, he said, throw me overboard. Like, he was fine with death. In fact, in Jonah chapter 4, after God forgives them, he tells God, kill me. I would rather be dead than see Nineveh forgiven. So it wasn't fear that caused him to flee. It was hatred for Nineveh that caused him to flee. And why did he flee? Why did he, why did he so badly not want to preach to them? Because he knows something about God. If you look at Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, this is the reason. This is Exodus 34, that famous passage, is why Jonah fled. Because he knows that passage, and he knows what that means, and he knows what that means for Nineveh. And so it says, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, or in order to, to keep this from happening, I fled to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you are a, this is Exodus 34, gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And then notice that final phrase. And one who relents concerning calamity. Instead of saying, you know, your punishment's only to the third and fourth and your steadfast love is for thousands, he just says, you relent concerning calamity. You don't stay angry forever. That's the same way that Micah uses it right here when he says he does not retain his anger forever. And uh, the lesson wasn't entirely supposed to go this. It's just interesting. But even back in, uh, in Psalm 104, uh, I will quickly, uh, Psalm 103 rather, in verse 8 through 9, it again uses the phrase in this psalm of praise to God, and it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not strive with us always, nor will he keep his anger forever. So all of that is to say that famous passage about the character of God, his steadfast love goes on and on forever. Yet he's slow to anger, and when he does have anger, it doesn't last forever. He relents concerning calamity. His anger comes to an end. It's to the third or fourth generation as opposed to the thousandth generation. His steadfast love is for the thousandth generation. So when Micah is talking about what God delights in, and he says, who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and sin? That's the idea of Exodus 34. And he is one who does not retain his anger forever. That's the conclusion of Exodus 34. And then he says in verse 18, but he delights in unchanging or steadfast love. It's like God enjoys sharing that love with his people and always maintaining that love for them so that they can always have hope and trust and confidence in him. So Micah 7 is another one of those. What does God delight in? He delights and takes joy in sharing his steadfast love with his people. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 11 now. Proverbs chapter 11. We're about to see in Proverbs right here, and there's other ones also, but I was just going to mention three. Three contrasts between something that is an abomination to the Lord being contrasted with something that he delights in. Something that gives pleasure or joy to the Lord. And in uh, Proverbs 11.1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So if God were to look at the marketplace— And he sees people acting with integrity. I think it's similar to what David said about all the gold. You know, it's not the gold that necessarily brings God pleasure. It's all his anyway. But it's the uprightness of the heart of the one who offers it that brings God pleasure. God delights in uprightness. Well, when God sees merchants responding to their customers and and people who buy and sell with integrity and honesty, and he sees balanced scales, things that are true, that brings delight to the Lord. When they are unbalanced or when they're false or when you're trying to rip people off or skim off the top, that's an abomination to the Lord. But honesty and uprightness in the marketplace is something that God actually delights in. Uh, When you look down at verse 20 of chapter 11, this is the second contrast. A perverse, uh, the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. 
So God takes delight in the people who walk in a blameless way rather than people whose hearts are constantly seeking out schemes to take advantage of others or to, uh, for, for sordid gain. He enjoys and rejoices and delights in seeing those who walk in a blameless way. And then in chapter 12 and verse 22, the third contrast Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. God delights when he sees people in truth dealing faithfully and honestly with one another. Again, there are many other passages I could go to uh, where we could see the same type of thing. You can see that God delights not in the sacrifices uh, that people offer, but the sacrifices of God were a broken and contrite heart and a broken spirit. Like true, genuine repentance is something that God delights in. So that when people who've truly repented and then act, you can see uh, what God delights in. That Psalm 51 ends by contrasting what God does not delight in, just going through the motions of sacrifices as opposed to what he does delight in, blessing his people who have truly from the heart repented. Uh, you can go, and there's a bunch of passages like that that talk about what brings God joy or what he delights in or what pleases him or what he has favor in doing. Those are all words that are used, I think, that, that get to this point of the joy that the Lord has. And so when you think about that and you think about our lesson this morning, There's a phrase that we talked about that says, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And this morning, I primarily talked about that to mean the joy that we have that comes from the Lord. But that phrase, the joy of the Lord, could actually have uh, another meaning uh, grammatically. It could be the Lord's joy is our strength. And when you do things that bring joy to the Lord, then God has joy. And I think certainly the fact, the context there is the people are mourning and he's telling them, no, don't mourn the joy of the Lord. So I think the, the Lord's joy is something that is shared and experienced by his people so that he's saying, don't mourn, but share in the joy of the Lord and that will be your strength. So it might be more than simply saying, have joy because of God. I think that's true, and I think that's good. But it might, in addition to that, uh, be rooted in the Lord's joy, like the joy of the Lord. The joy that the Lord has can be something that you have also and that you share in as you enjoy this festival with one another, the Feast of Booths. And as you do that, it gives you strength to overcome the hardships that, are, uh, that you face throughout your life and that you're facing now upon your return from exile. And so when you think about the joy of the Lord being your strength, Remember the things that bring God joy and then try to live into those. And I think what you'll notice is that you get to experience that joy as well. And as we experience the joy of the Lord, and we'll close with this, we have a place full of joy to look forward to. Um, learn, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, uh, there's a couple of parables. And there is uh, uh, something interesting that they all share with each other. And they're not necessarily parables about our future home in heaven. Uh, They're parables about uh, what happens on earth right now and how that impacts heaven. But to me, it's a good conclusion to what we've just been talking about because it's a reminder that there are things that happen on earth right now that make heaven a place of joy that make uh, angels in heaven rejoice. And I believe that the God of heaven rejoices as well. And so if you look at uh, Luke chapter 15, in verse 4, the parable of the lost sheep, 
It says, uh, when a man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go into the open pasture and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And then notice verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep, or my sheep which was lost. Well, I tell you the same, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. But in that, he's talking about one person who went away. Instead of like turning against that person in anger, the heavens, when that person comes back, there is more joy in heaven over that than over another really, really glorious thing, which is the 99 who never went astray. But think about the idea of the joy in heaven. What happens on earth creates and produces joy in heaven above. Um, the very next uh, parable in verses uh, 8 through 10 is about a woman who lost a coin. She looked at everything to try to find this coin, and she finally finds it. And then in verse 9, she calls her neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Verse 10 is the conclusion. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels of God rejoice, and there is joy in heaven when someone repents. Uh, then the prodigal son is the next one. And if you know the story of the prodigal son, you can see how it fits pretty well with these first two parables. A son who was lost, and he went and he squandered his father's, uh, uh, you know, what he had inherited from his father with riotous living with prostitutes and all of that. He ends up uh, as a servant serving pigs and swine. He ends up desiring to eat from the trough, like as low and unclean and disgusting as you can imagine a person's fate becoming, that's where he is. And he begins to realize it'd be better to be a servant or a slave in my father's household than to live this life that I'm living. And so with humility, he stands up and he begins to walk back to his father thinking, there's no way he'll accept me back as a son. Maybe as a hired hand, he possibly will. So we'll go and I'll offer to serve him just to be a part of his household again. And he makes the journey back. And the father, who has been constantly, consistently, longingly looking for his son, sees him in the distance. He runs out to him and he rejoices at the meeting of his son again. As you look at what happens in verse uh, 22, the father said to his slaves, after the son said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, he said, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine who is dead has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. In verse 25, the older son who was in the field, when he had come and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So we just saw two parables about the joy that takes place in heaven when someone repents. And here we get this example of a great celebration with a great feast and with joy and with music and all of that. Why? Because a son returned home. Now this parable goes on and I think the, the biggest point of the parable is what happens in the next couple of verses. Uh, but in here, connecting with our idea of joy of God and the joy of the Lord and the joy of heaven, I think it's important for us to remember that we're called to be a joyful people, but we're not alone in that. That joy has a root and a foundation somewhere, and it's founded with God himself. 
We have joy because we worship and serve a God of joy. And he shares that joy with us. And as Christians, we're able to share in that joy. It's one of the things that the Holy Spirit produces within us. And even as we live on this life, there's still celebration and joy and rejoicing that takes place in heaven. When people repent, when people are upright in their heart, when good is done on earth, when people are saved, when God sees his people and rejoices and delights in them, when we are upright in heart, all of these things contribute to the joy that takes place in heaven. And I believe they should contribute to the joy that we experience here on earth as well. Uh, so a lot more could be said about joy, but, uh, but I hope that this is a helpful reminder to... Even in the darkest of times, remember that all of those things that we just said about joy, they remain true even when we are going through some of the lows or the difficulties of life. And so joy is not always easy to find, but it's rooted in something that's always present and always eternal. And as long as we can reach back to that, we can find uh, hope and we can find peace and we can find reason for joy. And if there's anyone here tonight who would like to make heaven rejoice— you can do it. Uh, if there's anyone who would like to have your sins washed away in baptism or who has uh, drifted away from the Lord and wants to return and repent, we pray that you would let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.